welcome to The Digital Couch, a podcast about the ever-changing world of digital. The Digital Couch is brought to you by Value First. The podcast features leading global thinkers and their stories from the world of business, management and marketing. Now here's your host, Shauri Gupta. Hello everyone. Today we have with us Amit Dubey. Amit is director and general manager of Global Capability Center at Airbnb. Amit started his career with the Indian Army, then entered the corporate world with American Express. After spending over a decade, he moved to Uber and now finally at Airbnb. He's worked across US, India, Europe and Southeast Asia. And I personally couldn't think of a better guest to kick off this podcast series with someone but Amit. Amit, why don't you say hi to our listeners? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm sorry, as I shared, absolutely humbled and honored to be here. Uh, you yourself are, are an inspiration to me. So I'm uh, super, super excited about, uh, you know, doing this uh, podcast. So, you know, I, I got to be honest with you. When, when I was trying to create a structure for this particular episode, I was all over the place. I didn't understand where to begin. So I'm just going to be all over the place, but yet keep on asking you questions in an order that I thought is relevant. So I'm going to start with the basics. I mean, tell us about the time, about your time with the Indian Army. What made you join the Army? What did your years teach you that? Oh, thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough that while growing up very early, uh, as our um, my mom sent us to her brother who was a soldier in the Indian military and we lost our dad. So he was, he was, for me, he's been my father figure. He raised us. Um, Seeing him early kind of gave me the inspiration of joining the military. I was seven or eight. In fact, you know, my mom jokes that uh, we still have photographs that no matter which occasion that we go to, like whether it was a wedding or just birthday celebrations, all those pictures have me saluting. Uh, And she used to get annoyed that, you know, what the hell is this, right? This is not a right, like, if you attend the 26th January parade, then you should do this. But, like, why the hell would you salute in birthday parties and marriage uh, celebrations? So, it was awkward for her. But then, um, that, that's where, kind of, I would say, my intent kind of generated that, that, that I wanted to join the military. And as I grew older, I uh, kind of met up with a lot of military leaders, officers, and in the, I, I would definitely be honest to say that in the in the beginning, it was it was the respect, the aura, the the all the good things, the shiny things that you can see. But as I met leaders, I realized that, and some of them were, were I think, brutally honest, even to a young teenager, um, that you know, military is a is a service mm-hmm. uh, that you will give 30, 40 years if you live the old tenure. You'll give those 30, 40 years, but you'll not get anything in return, like nothing to show. And if you're okay with this concept of service that you will give your whole life and you'll not get anything in return, then it's the perfect place for you to be. And I mean, I was confused. I was like, what the hell? This is uh, crazy. I will give my whole life and I'll not get anything in return to show to anybody. I mean, of course you get respect and all those things, but like it, those are not tangible. You can't show it to anyone, right? If in the corporate world or otherwise there are, there, there is proof. And the military life is also within the military. So all your laurels, all the good things, only the military folks would know. So nothing kind of travels outside, not much. So even the respect, everything is just in that cant or in that campus, right? So 
but as cliched as it sounds, it resonated with me. And I was like, that's a brilliant way to spend my life and feel proud about it. Whenever I get to hang my boots, uh, if at all, I, I'd, be, um, I'd be proud of this thing that I dedicated my whole life uh, to, to a cause like this where I'll get to serve. Uh, so the idea of service uh, kind of resonated and that's why I ended up joining the military. I did join as a um, you know, civil engineering officer in the Corps of Engineers. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, I, I would say I, I met people who are happy and people who are not happy. And I think if something I learned from my, my own experience was that um, if you are not okay with this commitment or if at any point in time you don't believe in this cause, you will struggle. And I believe that even for like corporate world or any company we work for, any cause we work for, you got to first understand why you're there. Uh, if, if you get that right, and then then you'll have your whole heart in it, and you'll not have doubts that am I am I in the right company? Am I doing am I in the right career choice, etc. So understand what 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 is it that you are kind of signing up for right from the beginning. So hopefully uh, answer your question. That's beautiful, by the way. Yeah, thank you. All right. So I also wanted to touch about. I mean, we spoke about uh, how you 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 one of the stage four leukemia survivors, and I thought. It'll be great for our listeners to also know this story and for you to tell them about those times and how those experiences still help you in a way and if they do how. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you've seen the series Westworld. There is this, like every um, kind of artificial humans they create, they have a cornerstone, like the corners, like one story which kind of makes them their whole, gives them personality. Um, and in life, generally, all your struggles generally give you that cornerstone, like it shapes your thinking. And, um, you know, I'm not an exception. Having seen death so closely where uh, my doctors told my mom um, that I have 48 hours potentially and we should think about like the last rites and call people who you need to call. Um, from there to to you know, 16 years uh, being in remission, it's been a uh, it's been a an absolutely phenomenal journey. I'm just deeply humbled. And I was like before beginning this podcast, right? I was telling you that as I was reflecting, if this Amit ever gets to meet that Amit, I think that guy will be will not believe it. I mean, he'll cry his guts out. Um, uh, sorry, I will. Sorry, every time I I talk about it. Um, it kind of takes me that and I am slightly choking up, but it's it just, uh, no matter how many times I've shared this, it, it brings me those, those memories in, in a good way that, that, that young boy, whatever I thought and, and, and I, I worked on has worked well, um, has kind of gotten me so far. And I mean, I, I didn't know how should I react or how, how should I kind of think about spending my time or, or think about living. But what I did do was that as soon as I got to know what I have and, and what's the chances and possibilities, um, I did ensure and tell my mom and everybody else around that only tell me success stories. So like tell me stories of cancer patients who've survived. Don't give me the, um, you know, not so successful stories because I was like, you know, not so successful. I'm like, that's a given, right? That's yeah. chances of me dying is very high. That's 
like why the why the hell would I want to know about it? Like or so um, and I only cared for survivors or and and hence that's the reason why even today I'm deeply passionate about this cause of um, meeting cancer survivors and actually meeting people who are going through cancer or being recently diagnosed or their family members and uh, tell them how to like at least how did I cope up with it. Um, and at a later stage, very recently, I read about this. Uh, uh, you know, Jim Collins has written this book called Good to Great. Uh, and he mentioned about uh, the Stockdale paradox. And paradox is basically anything which is absurd. Uh, and he, he met um, Stockdale, James Stockdale, who was a, a, a Navy commander um, in the US military. Um, he was captured in, in Vietnam War and tortured for seven and a half years. And he yet he survived. So Jim Collins met him and asked him, first question he asked him, like, who were the first people to die uh, in that prisoner of war camp? He said the optimists. The optimists were the first ones to die. And I was like, Jim, and like, it's very contrary, right? Why would optimists die? Um, and the story explained that, you know, because the optimists thought that by Christmas, we will be out. Or by Thanksgiving, for sure, we'll be out. And because they put these timelines that U.S. has such a strong military, we will be taken out. Like, you know, there's no way a small country like Vietnam will keep us captured. Um, and he said that those were the first because their hearts would break. Because one Christmas, second Christmas, and third Christmas, nothing would happen. And he said that's where the Stockdale paradox is that you have to be, a, you have to be an optimist, but in the long run. Uh, in the short run, you have to be a hyper-realist. You have to confront your brutal realities, whatever it is. And I think we are in the right times. Right? With this coronavirus, I think there are people who are saying, you know, two weeks, one month, vaccine <laughs> will be here and all that stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. absolute. And I find that comparison, I, and I shared this with my teams as well, that, you know what, be an optimist. You should be. But in the long run, like, don't put timelines that by when will it be okay. Like, if in the long run, it will be okay. But in the short run, we should be confronting our realities. And that's what I did actually without knowing all this concept, but in the, when I was going through my treatment, which was, which I realized when I met cancer survivors, one thing they told me, Amit, the recovery is very long. So you will take years to kind of maybe get back to half the strength you have. Um, and that was something, a reality that I kind of, I accepted. And I was like, okay, if I, it'll take me six months to eat from my own hand, um, I will, do a fake eating, right? So for example, when I was paralyzed neck below, my mom would make me eat from my hand. I mean, she'll be holding my hand and making me eat food. We'll fake it. But that was our joy that Amit, like in our, I mean, there was, I don't think there was WhatsApp at that time, but we will celebrate and tell all, all our relatives that Amit ate from his own hand I mean, in a fake way. But uh, those were, like, that's how we confronted our realities that we will focus on today. We'll focus on like, what, what am I going to eat for breakfast? What am I going to eat for lunch? Um, you know, what would she read me or uh, like, how would my, where would they take me on a stretcher uh, and have me see the sun? Like those were my, that's what I looked for. Like, that's what I focused on. And nothing I, when people ask me that, like, Amit, do you know what's going to happen with you? I was like, no, I'm not interested. I know in the long run, I'll be okay. But in the short run, I'm just really excited about my lunch. Uh, and here's what I'm going to eat. So, right, you have to put those blinders on to not uh, lose, your, lose your brain. But um, one thing I do want to call out is that, was I scared? Absolutely. Was I confident I'm going to get out of it? Not at all. There were days I, was, I would break down and uh, feel dejected. But then 
um, you know, having a strong mother who always made me kind of realize my commitment. And my commitment was, you know, let's just focus on today. Let's just focus on next step. Uh, and then in the long run, we'll be okay. Um, yeah, so that's, that's probably the biggest learning that I've had is how to confront your brutal realities and then yet be hopeful, but in the long run. So the Stockdale paradox resonates quite well with me. I'm definitely going to read about this. As you said, coronavirus is actually spoiling our short-term and long-term plans. So maybe yeah, yeah. something to ponder on later today. Absolutely. Thanks so much. How have you actually taken this attitude when it comes to your work life now? So you spoke about positive attitude. You spoke, spoke about short-term sightedness. And from your early days, you've managed these large teams, right? And helping them grow, making them feel safe are are also a few things that all leaders must must take on. What has been your approach when it comes to these challenges or these tasks, if I may put it like that? Yeah, and, and I think, Chor, you touched upon the right one small element, which I think is extremely important, which is which is about leadership. And uh, I'm I'm still I still feel I'm a a very uh, humble student of leadership. You know, it's something that I kind of constantly aspire to become better at. Uh, but there are a few things that I've learned along the way, uh, which Simon Sinek has captured this in his TED talk, Leaders Make You Feel Safe. He says leadership is a choice. It's not a rank. Uh, and that choice comes with uh, responsibilities. Uh, it's not that, you know, because you get a certain rank, you're a leader. That's that's never a case. You, you might have authority because yeah. of the structure, etc. But leadership is a choice. And, and that choice is... Uh, at least what we learned in the military and I, and I, and I've seen successful leaders in the corporate world as well. It's, it's a choice to serve others. Um, that's what, um, I have seen. If you have that mindset, if you have that thinking, those are the leaders I've seen get celebrated, get achieve, you know, great things. Because if you, if you have that mindset, then you are thinking about investing and making your people better. Uh, and, you know, having them do achieve great things like Steve Jobs, for example, right? People say, while he was a great visionary, but it was his team which would make his vision come to life, right? He, he wasn't the somebody who would kind of design the iPhone or iPod, right? He was, he was um, Ivy, right? Who, who is chief design officer who would do the designing, right? So he had great people and he was able to inspire them to do great things. Of course, I know Steve Jobs wasn't a very uh, empathetic leader. Uh, that, that's something that I do not attest to. But, but the, the concept of, I think, you know, being in service of your teams and your people and having them, you know, providing them the guidance is something that I've learned. As well as this quote that I, is my actually favorite quote of all times, this where Maya Angelou um, said that, you know, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Um, this is something that has resonated with me, specifically when we're involved, going to be, be around people. So yeah. once we've gone, all people are going to remember is how you made them feel, right? So, and at least to me, that matters a lot. How would, how would people remember me? Uh, and, and to any leader who, who's conscious of these things, I think would do, would make mistakes, but then he or she will be um, humble enough to learn from it and then kind of go back at it and you know do better. 
That's, that's a beautiful way to look at it. Nice. But how do you evolve yourself as a leader? I mean, you're looking at their, them, but how do you evolve yourself? So, for example, it's said that every five years, a new set of generation enters the workforce, and rather than changing them, we should change ourselves as managers or leaders. And yeah, I mean, for example, right now the so-called millennials are a part of our teams, which will be followed by baby boomers. I mean, how do we look at the work? Yeah. So, how does your approach change with this? And in fact, this is even more critical given that most of us are sitting at home and working from home these days because of whatever's happening outside. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a great question. And um, one experiment I would say that I've been deeply passionate about is what drives people to do uh, more than what you ask them to do, right? I, I think great things happen when people are themselves inspired and motivated enough to do to do great things, do more than what you, what they've been told. Because if you do what you've been told, that's easy. I mean, if somebody tells you move this from here to here and you do it, right? There's no, there's no intellect of sorts. You haven't put your spin on it, right? So, but what environment do you create so that people put their spin on it? Like if it's a, if it's even if it's a small task, how can that task be a, a task that you know has Shori's brand on it that people look at it and say, oh my god, yeah, this is Shori man all over it or this is X, Y, Z, uh, because they have done, they put their own spin on it. Um, and that experiment right from the military and specifically coming as, coming from a son of a soldier, uh, I realized successful officers were the one whose troops were with him or her. Um, this concept of inclusive leadership, which is about, you know, how do you make sure everybody in your team kind of feels like they, that they belong and they're, they're part of the team. Um, I have read and seen a lot of people talk about it, meaning they would say that I'm an inclusive leader, like I, I involve my team, et cetera, in the, in the decision-making, et cetera. But um, it's easier said than done. I mean, saying it is easy, but like, do you, do you design systems which ensure that you have an inclusive leadership framework? For example, one thing that all my, across my career in the corporate world, um, I have, tried to kind of set up, et cetera, is this um, employee innovation platforms. Basically a um, democratic platform where employees, if they have ideas or any problem that they want to solve, they have the authority to be able to solve it. They will work with the right people, but basically, you know, one thing that I propagate is that if you have the problem, you are the CEO of that problem. And like everybody else in my team, including myself as a general manager, I work for you for that problem. So just uh, kind of building that culture, I felt that is extremely important for the generation that's already in and even the generations to come. I think people are gone of those days where you could command and you know say, do this and people would do it. And I know it's, it's, it, it might sound um, ironical that, you know, and, and people do have this cliche that in the military, you're told what to do and you do it. Um, and that's, that's a cliche or a bias that, you know, I try and kind of, uh, a lot of my ex-military friends or people who are working in the uh, corporate world kind of tend to have to, has to have to deal with is that military is not a place where you have to do what, what they've been told because they can't tell you that you will go in a battlefield and then one person A will fire and then you will fire and you'll move then left five centimeters. Nobody will tell you all that. Right? You're given just a high-level direction of what to do, and then you, you like, there are no rules. Like, you get high-level guidance, and you have to be an entrepreneur, like in a way that do things on the ground, which 
which nobody will kind of give you a stencil for. Right. Um, and that's what I feel even in the, in the today's generation and the generations to come. Um, at least that's my, again, all of this is my personal opinion. So my personal opinion is that I don't think that we will have a generation or we have people who like to be told all the time what to do. You have to give them just a high level direction and then let them put their spin on it. Let, let them, let them be their individual self and do it in a way which, uh, which kind of they feel is the best way to do. Of course, um, if we are building uh, a bridge and there are certain security specifications, you, know, you can't ask people to be innovative on that, right? So of course there could be certain specifications you have to, you have to follow. So there are those caveats, but um, I think barring those, wherever there is a possibility, uh, I think inclusive leadership is, uh, is of utmost importance. And the second aspect, um, which I would say is now people crave for passion, uh, meaning passion for a cause that they want to be associated with the company, which is able to give them a cause that they are wanting to solve for. That is, I think probably going to get bigger and bigger. And as I meet uh, the younger generation, as we hire people and I think people are much more attached towards companies or organizations, which are um, working for a cause. And, and I think all companies, if they are able to find that cause, they're, they, they sh I mean, reach their own, but there's also, uh, I think some people are just you know, trying to fake it. That's not going to happen uh, or people are going to see through it. Uh, I mean, if you're building enterprise software and, and if you're saying you're uh, solving for humanity crisis, that, that just doesn't 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 go along right um i mean i'm not going to take names but there are there are prospectus of companies that i've seen that uh that if you look at it you do realize that come on come on you're not you're not raising the conscience of the world right so you got to be you got to be honest of what you're doing and there are a few companies who are extremely honest uh, in what they do uh, but i do feel uh, you know people nowadays are more passionate about a certain cause and if you're able to find that uh, and articulate it for your employees uh, i think that's that's going to serve you well so. Well, that's completely echo your thoughts. But when we also talk about passion, there's also this concept of taking risk that comes along. Yeah. So, and it's a very debated topic, especially when it comes to say leadership. Yeah. And some say that, you know, take risk, do things, whatever you want to do, and you'll be rewarded. And some say that you should never trust your instincts. You should just follow the book. Mm. For me, for example, personally, creativity is all about inventing and experimenting. Hence, yeah. It should be about risk all the time. Of course. What's what's been your take on this all these years? Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for that uh, thoughtful question. I think um, specifically, uh, sorry, for the last few years, I've been um, involved with uh, the biggest disruptors, so per, per se, right? So Uber, Airbnb, they've disrupted industries which are hundreds of years old. Um, that has, at a personal level, have made has made me realize that technology is moving very fast. And all of us have to keep ourselves kind of ahead of the curve. But even with like, you know, no matter how advanced technologies go, um, I, I, you know, there are tons of studies, but a couple of things which are, which are unique to humans, uh, I would say is this risk-taking ability, is this creativity, which is not going to go away. Um, and maybe I, if I can add the second piece, which is going to be compassion. Uh, that's something that at least... I don't think, you know, bots or technology is going to kind of get compassion and compassion is what makes us unique as humans. And 
you know, Jeff Wiener just recently described compassion as is empathy plus action. So empathy is if I, I feel sorry for you, but then if I if I do something about it, then that's called compassion. So hence, I, I think empathy is just alone is not enough. You have to have compassion too. Any inequalities that we see in the world, um, just saying that you you are sorry for it or you you know you wish this would better is not enough. We have to take action. So compassion is a second element. But I'll go back to your question of being or having creativity. Like I have seen truly. Um, how these, especially technology companies, disruptors, look at problems and, and look at um, um, technologies to solve for those problems, which then humans are not required for that. And then, then some people might kind of go into this negative zone of, oh my God, you know, the work is going to go away, uh, that kind of thing. Like, I, I'm not sure. Like, I don't think so. I, I think the work is going to be there and that's where things which make us human, like creativity or taking risks or finding newer way to do things is going to be key. Um, and and I like to share this probably, you know, you can read this article as well. Back in, back in the time when um, Henry Ford kind of came up with this whole cars and all that stuff, uh, many people wrote many things that, oh my God, so many horses are going to be out of job. And then people who... In, have the horse industry or the carriage industry is going to be disrupted and the world will be, there will be no work and people will be sitting idle, even with the industrial revolution. Like those were things people predicted. Oh my God, everything is going to be taken away. I'm not from that camp. I think, you know, till the time we remain humans, uh, we will have this ability to think about uh, solving for things in a creative fashion. Uh, it, go, it goes back to my earlier point, right? That that's what makes us us. Um, and, and, that's what we should be thinking about. Like if you're in, in a big company, um, as I shared, I, I have seen that attitude where in big companies, like people always feel that all the hard problems have already been solved. So I am supposed to execute, which is not true. Um, like I have gotten involved in processes which were like 30 years old. And yet we were able to bring about like over 500 ideas in just a matter of months. And for 30 years, like people just did what they were told and that's it. And they felt this is, exploited enough and there's no, nothing much left and we were like things were able to come up over 500 ideas and so that that has made me kind of realize that there's nothing which is perfect there's always this that's always considered as a version 1.0 and this could be a 2.0 or 3.0 like you should you can keep um, you know trying to make it better so and i do feel then creativity and innovativeness is something which is uh, a key skill in in the coming times interesting I also want to bring in your personal experience into this question and other follow-ups. I mean, you work across the world, you've traveled a fair bit, and I personally also feel that, you know, just having a global perspective adds so much value in oneself. And as, as I said, I've just seen that. So what is your take on it when it comes to say diversity, ethics, the multicultural aspects of people around us and technology worldly covered? Yeah. Um... That, 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 and, and absolutely, I think, sorry, you were a shining example of, of how it helps if you're able to kind of live in a different country, work and, and kind of um, study with so many uh, people with such diverse backgrounds, because the world has, in some ways, technology has gotten everybody closer. Uh, like earlier, even if you, um, I mean, look at this, right, this technology, we're on, on, on this podcast, we're able to speak to each other through Zoom, we're able to see each other. Um, so technology is bringing everybody together. So in today's world, like those 
in today's globalized world, uh, world um, the idea that you do something in a, in a closed space and that's about it, that's, that's uh, no longer there. Like no matter what you are, you will have a global audience. So you'll have to work with this. And the sooner you're able to come to terms with it, that there are people with different backgrounds and different um, cultures and they have different nuances, uh, I think it's super helpful. Um, I do, I'm, I'm somebody because uh, as you rightly mentioned, I've traveled around the world and kind of gotten involved. I made many mistakes um, as I moved around because different cultures have different nuances. Uh, and I do recommend this uh, book by Erin Myers. She's a professor at NCR. She's written this culture map, which again, the idea isn't to generalize, but is to give you some concrete examples of how, um, for example, there's a context to it. Uh, like Indian language is highly contextual. Uh, American language is uh, pretty straightforward, right? In US, for example, uh, like what they say, right? Speak what you mean, mean what you speak, right? But yeah. in, for example, in France, if there's not, this is something I'm quoting from her book, is that if a husband has to t tell his wife that you're putting on weight, right? So in France, uh, a husband might choose the word saying, honey, you've had so much, uh, ice cream already do you think you need another one so like they would not be to the point so again it's a highly contextual um, kind of so if you work with colleagues or people around the world there are there, there are these you know high context low context again if you travel then those generalizations do not exist but there are certain nuances and um, as you will move around as you will get to know people get to meet them understand their cultures uh, those are some of the things which uh, kind of make you make you better in your thinking um, just one example that I could also share on my, from my own personal uh, life is that this whole uh, idea concept that I was talking to you about, like, you know, having, having building structures where people can give ideas and they can work on their ideas. I was told that this is not a global concept. It can only work in certain countries. And as I assume global leadership responsibilities, um, you know, I wouldn't name those regions, but some folks from specific regions told me, I mean, this is not going to work here. You know, people are not very much about ideas or they don't give ideas and stuff. Uh, but it wasn't, it was absolutely far from truth. Mm. The whole globe, like if you tell somebody that, hey, by the way, uh, you know, you have these problems and, you know, I will give you the liberty to solve a problem and solve for it and, you know, make it better. Nobody in the world, like we're all humans. We want things better, like efficiencies, we all crave for it. So uh, we, it, it, the way can be different but the end objective can be achieved. So I also want to kind of give this caveat as you learn about different cultures, do not use it as constraints, mm. use it as a way to know about cultures and yet you can still achieve what you achieve. Because for example, some of these uh, leaders who gave me this guidance that, you know, idea innovation doesn't work in our culture. They, that was far from the truth. And it, because they saw something and they put it as a constraint. It's just the ways are different, but, like basic human needs across the globe are, I would say, still the same. So, but it's good to be aware of uh, certain nuances and how how um, certain cultures work, etc. So, yeah, great, great. Open your eyes, something. Yeah. Not challenge them, basically. Right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, fair enough. Yeah. So, at the risk of sounding preachy, as as my last question, yeah. actually, I actually want to give you an example. Say, there's an X Y Z person who recently became a manager. And I'm sure you've covered a lot of points above. Sure. Let's say this person became the manager. What are the first three things that he or she should look at to begin this new stint? If you were to put them. 
Yeah, that's um, yeah. It, it's something that uh, I discuss with my newly promoted managers or, or managers who come in, come in my team as well. It, it is a it is a you know highly talked about topic. In fact, if you just Google leadership, like you'd find gazillions of articles. Um, so, but I do recommend that. So number one thing that I follow, which was taught to me by my leaders, etc., is leadership is something that you get better at by practicing. It's not a theory subject. It's not something that if you read about, you'll become better. Um, you have to like put it in practice. And that's probably, that's the reason why, for example, most of the books that I read are by practicing philosophers. And like, I'm a huge Marcus Aurelius fan. Uh, he was a he was a Roman emperor, one of the best ones, and he's written this. It's not a book. It's basically his note to self. It's called. It's the name of the book is Meditations. I mean, he didn't mean it to be a book, but it's become a book, and it is. It has survived centuries. So, yeah. imagine it's been filtered by so many people. Because if let's let's say somebody you know twenty centuries ago wrote a bad book, then people throw it away, saying, "Yeah, this is useless. Like throw it." Like, no, so the readership will go down, but. A book which has survived almost close to 20 centuries is something that um, has fascinated me, and I, and I, and I keep it as my um, bedside table kind of a reminder book. Um, and the reason I like Marcus Aurelius is because he's talked about practicing leadership. He's talked about things that leaders should try, and then you'll learn, and you'll you'll succeed, and you'll fail. So, as new managers, I would say that at least get your hands on few fundamental things. For example. Uh, if, if it was like if somebody asks me what I recommend to them is these three books um, uh, book by Andy Grove um, his book called high output management he was the founder uh, and one of the CEOs of Intel um, so he's run a um, highly complex kind of process kind of company uh, but he's broken it down in a beautiful manner like how should leaders uh, conduct meetings one-on-ones how should their calendar look like like just absolutely brilliant one of the best books that i can recommend and and you'd hear from a lot of silicon valley entrepreneurs or leaders uh, kind of give his reference so uh, i got to know about him a few years a few years ago um, and 100 like it's a it's actually a, a mandate in my teams so all managers must read uh, high output management because i i quoted and discussed it many times uh, and then a couple more is Ken, Ken Blanchard, One Minute Manager, just a very small book, few, only a few pages, just basics. Yeah. Um, Evergreen, somebody gave it to me when I joined American Express like decades ago or, or a decade or more ago. Uh, another uh, book I recommend is uh, Crucial Conversations by Joe Allen Braun, um, because in leadership roles, you will come across many crucial conversations uh, where it'll be not about it'll be unpleasant conversations or how do you do it. But again, these are just, these will only give you principles that you can follow. Um, but eventually you will become a leader of your own. And hence you should, what I generally as leaders become new leaders, what I tell them is read these books and stuff and like, let's catch up after three months and tell me about the experiments that you do. Because it's about practicing, like, because all humans are different and that's also amazing. That's what makes us human. Like everybody's different. So if somebody wasn't motivated, how do you inspire them? If somebody's not doing something, how do you, what do you try? Because I can't write a formula for you saying, you know, here are four things, go and do it and you'll be successful. Right. So, and I definitely believe there is no such formula. Uh, it's to each unique situation, you, you have to apply things and you only get better, but it is a topic. I, I don't think you can master. Uh, like I have, learned this from very successful leaders as well who always told me Amit uh, I'm not a master I'm still a learner 
Uh, in fact, I've had the luxury of working with some really amazing leaders in the industry. Um, and this is one thing that has stayed with me that they've always said, Amit, I'm also a learner of leadership. I'm a student of leadership. Um, and so I put myself in the same category. And uh, hopefully, uh, we're not sounding preachy on this one. Um, the, the idea is that it's something that you have to keep practicing to, to kind of get better at and, and not get overwhelmed, right? I think, um, you know, Messi said this wonderfully well. He said, it took me 17 years, 11 months, nine days to become an overnight star. Yes. Like, so people feel that he was gifted and he was born, and, but it's, it's not true. He was he's somebody who's practiced his craft for so many years, but people think it's, he's an overnight success. And as you will uh, get to know about people who are successful, like you have to look into their past and look into their failures and challenges and all that stuff is what makes them, you know, where they have, they have reached. So um, it's definitely a uh, myth for people to think leaders are born or lead, like, or anything like that. Um, I mean, many, many examples in the sports industry or anywhere else like Serena Williams, uh, people think she's a great, I mean, she is the greatest athlete of all time, but imagine that like, she just gave birth and yet just a few months later, she was back at the court practicing, losing, uh, and there are times when people read the laurels, they will feel that, oh my God, you know, she's such a, she was born with it. Um, mm -hmm. And they forget that how much of the effort and sacrifice and um, the challenges she's faced to, to, to get where she's gotten. So uh, that's, that's my, uh, I would say, I think I've given few cents, but yeah, <laughs> few, few cents on, on, on a first time manager. So I mean, this has been beautiful actually. I've I wish I can just hear this on and on and I'm very glad that we did this and this is our first podcast episode. So I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for being here and speaking to us and telling all our listeners a few things about leadership and your experiences. Really appreciate it. Sure thing, uh, Shori. Uh, and I think it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity um, that you are getting to speak to people and get different perspectives. Um, that's how you learn and grow. And in fact, during this conversation with your questions, uh, as I think about my answers, et cetera, it's making me learn more about what are the things that I could do better or I should learn more about. Like, so uh, I think it's a fantastic initiative, all the very best. Um, as I've shared, uh, I'm massively inspired by your journey uh, as I've seen you do such amazing things. Um, so I'm not surprised where you are uh, for all the hard work that you've done. Uh, I wish you, wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Amit. Thanks for joining us this time on The Digital Couch. Make sure to visit our website, vfirst.com, where you can subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, do write to us at thedigitalcouch at vfirst.com. Be sure to tune in to our next episode. See you.